as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Potomy app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radiopotomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710-KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710-KURV and KURV.com. Here's Davis. Houston Chronicle story. Good headline. Nearly half of U.S. car buyers plan to go electric in the next two years, comma, report fines. Uh, nearly half of U.S. consumers who plan to buy a car in the next two years say they'll go electric. And that's uh, a report from a consulting firm, Ernst & Ernst & Young, um, surveyed 1,500 consumers in March. 48% of them plan to buy an electric vehicle. That's a 20% jump from last year's survey and this is the one that i really whoa texas is already one of the fastest growing states for electric vehicle adoption Two hundred thousand electric vehicles registered in the state and a quarter of them are in houston houston um despite enthusiasm for electric vehicles among buyers concerns about access to charging stations persist um, just more than half of U.S. consumers surveyed said they're concerned about finding charging stations. Yep, we used to say um, when when you drive driving uh, into the valley or actually out of the valley, it doesn't make any difference. Then make sure you got plenty of gas because you don't want to break down in the middle of the King Ranch, whether you're going north or south. Ed Harris is a lecturer in the Department of Economics uh, at uh, the University of Houston. It says here he teaches energy economics courses to undergraduate and graduate students within the department. And they quote Mr. Harris in this article um, making uh, making nice noises about electric vehicles. And I called him earlier. Thanks for being with us. Uh, you don't think or you think this is a, 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 an accurate – this survey is, is pretty accurate. About uh, 48% of vehicle buyers say they're going to buy an electric vehicle. That just well, – I, I think – Right. I think they're certainly considering it. I, you know, I just went through uh, picking up a car and I, I took yeah. a brief look at them. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I drove a Tesla here not too long ago. And, you know, the concerns about range and, and recharging are important. Um, I just went up and down 35 into Kansas. Um, you know, I found charging stations, uh, you know, from, from the Collins Street Bakery. In Corsicana, um, yes. Ardmore, Oklahoma, you know, a lot of the truck stops are now bringing out the really? charging stations. Bucky's is doing that. Bucky's. Um, oh, yeah. that means we've lost the fight. If Bucky's is going, if Bucky's is is accommodating EVs, we've it's over. The fight's over. No, 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 no. It just gives you more opportunity to to have a, another brisket sandwich and, and pick up some jerky. Um, oh, but I, it's now jerky's I, up to thirty-two dollars a pound. I'll have you know, but go ahead. Sorry, yeah, I saw it at thirty-three and a quarter. But the, oh. you're right. Oh, uh, yeah, ouch. The um, um, 
but you know, electric vehicles have always made sense if if you're going to be close in town and and doing you know not more than 25 to 50 miles a day around town and and if you think of the old american family you know uh, husband wife 2.4 kids mm-hmm. a dog uh you know two vehicles in the garage you know one can certainly be the 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 suv transporter for going to grandma's or evacuating during a hurricane uh going going to the the cub scouts and another one can be the around town ev that um yeah, you plug in at night, mm-hmm. um, charge up, and go on uh, go on about your way. Um, I was just looking at a, a, a price comparison, if you will. Uh, you know, overnight charging for an EV is going to cost you about two bucks, uh, maybe three, give or take some of the prices we've had on electricity here lately, uh, mm-hmm. and and that can get you up to a couple hundred miles. Uh, so that's that's really kind of inexpensive in terms of operating cost. Um, you know, 200 miles on a, on a uh, Ford F-150 uh, that's not the electric, um, you know, that might be as much as 50 bucks. Hmm. Um, and, and so the operating cost on EVs is really very, very, very uh, uh, cheap. Um, you know, anecdotally, my friends who have them, you know, they change the wiper blades, they change the tires, but that's about it. Um, you know, you know, we don't have don't have much in the way of of uh, you know. Is there less jobs? Is there less wear and tear humor. on on the on the metal parts or the engine than an electric yeah. car than there is on a? See, I I've never looked under the hood. I just I don't know how they're powered. I just assumed it was like a regular motor except powered by electricity. But no, no, it's it's an electric um, electric motor. Um, you know, a little bit larger than your ceiling fan, uh, but uh, <laughs> you know, very, very powerful. You know, electricity gives very, very high torque, uh, and um, you know, pound for pound, you get a lot more out of out of an electric motor than you do on a similar gasoline-sized uh, uh, type of engine. And and you know, for decades, uh, we've been using diesel electrics for locomotives. Yeah, it's it's real easy to to pull a a train with uh, a diesel fired generator powering the electric motors. Yeah, but you still have to have the you still have to have the diesel. Um, that's absolutely right, and and so where we're doing, and that's of course what a hybrid automobile is. Basically, it's very similar to a, the diesel electric locomotive, except it uses gasoline and. They they call them mid hybrids or mild hybrids or, uh, mm-hmm. but you know you have you have an electric um, uh, uh, motor with a battery that can take you fifteen twenty miles and then the uh, uh, gasoline engine kicks in. We're talking with Ed Harris who teaches uh, at the University of Houston. He teaches energy economics courses, um, and we've talked to we've talked with him a lot about the electric grid in this. In, in this state, um, well, let me get this question: If if we move to electric vehicles as fast as this survey says we're going to, then is there enough electricity? I mean, we we already ran short once during a during a an ice during a storm, a winter storm. Do we have enough to power my air conditioner and your air conditioner, and also the, this charging stations and the more that are on their way? 
You know, we should. Um, over the next few years, we've got real problems because the legislature really hasn't addressed the fact that the Texas economy keeps growing and we're not adding enough electricity generation to the, the portfolio. The, the economic incentives for the uh, uh, natural gas-fired power plants that we need to maintain resiliency just aren't there. They haven't been, we wrote about this in 2013, you know, long before wind and solar were a big part of the grid. Uh, but as, as the wind and solar continue to develop and uh, we begin to get a, a, a utility-scale batteries deployed across the grid, I think we're going to do pretty well with, with being able to charge the EVs uh, during the evening and night when, when typically demand across the state falls off. Does it surprise you that the charging stations have um, sprung up as they have, given that we're still, you know, we're still we're we're an oil and gas state and you know, like proud of it? But um, that's what surprises me that we have we're, we're building out the charging stations. The legislature's either has or is going to appropriate money to put a whole bunch of them up, but I don't know if they've done it or not. Well, yeah, Davis, the oil and gas guys I know love the EVs because they can put them into crazy mode and have tremendous acceleration. You know, very, very few vehicles can beat an EV off uh, off the line in a quarter of a mile. Good Lord. You're kidding yeah, me. This, these, these things are a blast to drive with the acceleration. And, you know, the, the technology is coming along. They're, I don't know that I'd trust one to... To, to go into auto drive for me and, and drive me around town, but they're doing that out in California. And because um, uh, they're crazy, the data the data are there that this could work really pretty well. I'm I'm expecting that our our great grandchildren are going to look look back at us and go, God, you you guys were allowed to drive cars. <laughs> there there was uh, I want to bring this up because I've heard it brought up in other venues about who was it grand home or somebody was saying that our the vehicles we use to make war or to send the military out in needs to go green we need to power them in some other way i i didn't read what she said but it sounded pretty stupid to me do you know anything about this yeah, well, um, she's over in the Department of Energy, not in the Department of Defense. And as, as, as it turns out, the, the fellow leading the energy transition at DOD is a friend of mine. Yeah. And um, we've been facing this for a long time. Uh, renewable fuels, uh, uh, Tyson produced the first renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, now more than 13 years ago with their plant in Geisler, Louisiana. Um, uh, taking basically veg uh, uh, chicken fat and refining it into uh, oh, diesel, um, and, and it drops right in. It's a drop-in fuel. Yeah, but you know, one of the great problems is even though we have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, we still need petroleum to fly the the aircraft off of those carriers. We need the petroleum for the destroyers for the other surface ships that we we advance around mm -hmm. um this is this is not going to happen anytime soon uh, nasa just grounded its um, all-electric uh, aircraft because of some some challenges they're facing yeah they've, they've been doing this research for a long time um, but it's it's difficult to get the energy density into a battery 
and then put something uh, like an aircraft up in the air, uh, uh, the energy density within a, you know, a, a, what is it, a, a half a cup of gasoline is equivalent to a stick or two of dynamite. I mean, there's mm. a lot of power built into that. And so I think for, for projecting defense, um, we're going to be relying on, on hydrocarbons, petroleum, uh, for, for, the next, you know, for the next 10 to 20 years. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, on that note, we have to say goodbye. Thank you, though, for being with us. Uh, we'll check in with you again. That's uh, Ed Hurst, who teaches at the University of Houston, talking about electric vehicles, electric vehicles. You're listening to the 956 Drive Home here on 17KRV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710KURV and KURV.com. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Davis. The topic of real estate always fascinates me because in some ways it's a foundational economic driver. Uh, I don't pretend to know a lot about it, and I forget a lot, but um, and I see these prices that are being asked for houses, and I know what I paid for my house, and we could have, as I always say, we could have borrowed a lot more. I was stunned how much they would loan me. I never thought I was that good of a credit risk, uh, but we didn't, t- you know, we didn't, we didn't go for that. Uh, you can have a house, but not afford to turn the lights on or have furniture, uh, so uh, but uh, I have seen headlines about the state of the real estate business nationwide. And then, well, I want to find out what it's doing down here. Craig Groves is the Craig Grove is the Grove behind Grove Realty, uh, who does business, who's located in South. Is it fair to say South Cameron County? Is that your speciality? Uh, well, actually, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say South Cameron County. Our office is located just north of Brownsville. So we're right by Rancho Viejo. In the booming metropolis of Olmito. Is there really an Olmito, exactly. or is that just a place on the map? It's kind of just an area. It's not really anything. There's no, like, there's no town hall or, you know, council oh. or anything like that. It's just called Olmito. It's like an area. Okay. Uh, but Olmito itself has been growing, has it not? Yes, it has. I mean, in the, you know, the area has been growing. We've got a huge subdivision, Largo Vista, over there. Um, and the, the area that's unincorporated, you know, it has all these rundown houses, but they're right across from this beautiful Rosaka. And mm. those lots have gone up in value tremendously. Like, now you, you pay about 150 for one of those lots alone, ah. if you can even get one. Yeah, it's crazy. When... Uh- I'm going to jump around on you, but when you talk about a lot, is there a conventional size for quote a lot? And I say that because a, uh, a lot at the on the on the beach side at South Padre is not the same size as a lot in in McAllen. 
Yeah, I mean, there's not really a conventional size per se, but, you know, kind of a standard residential lot size is probably 60 by 150. Okay. Pretty typical in that frame. Yeah, I we bought an old house built in 1952 in part because it had a large yard and because we wanted a large yard for the kids to run around in. And we pay extra for that now. <laughs> McAllen charges a little bit extra for because that's not whatever their sweet spot is for a for a lot in furnishing city uh, city services. We're bigger than that, so we get to pay more. I don't know if it's that way down the valley. I mean, if you have more land, you're going to pay more in taxes. That's for sure. Uh, the um, uh, what's the price? How, how do you all? I look at a, a house. At, at the total price, like we had a house in our neighborhood, was on the market for four hundred no for three hundred ninety nine thousand dollars, which I thought was a lot of money in our neighborhood. And I don't know what it sold for, but I think that's what it sold for. Uh, but I don't look at it in terms of square feet. Real estate people and everybody else looks at it in terms of square feet. Do you not? Uh, I mean, that is kind of a fundamental way that we as real estate agents look at properties. Is it's just kind of the easiest way we can break down a property is based on the square footage of living area which is air conditioned space okay and you get that number by comparing it to other sold homes so you know let's say you came to me davis and you said craig i want to sell my house what's it worth well i would get the information on your house and then i'd look up like three four five houses in your area that are similar to yours that have sold in the past six months to a year then i would break those down by square footage and then I would use that uh, based, you know, that number that yeah. I came to, to figure out what your house should sell for theoretically. That's the comparable value. Uh, Correct. That's a comparable approach. Uh, what started uh, what started me calling uh, Craig Grove of Grove Realty uh, was a headline I saw in an Upper Valley paper. The Valley's residential market hits an average of $150 per square foot. But this was a question mark. It wasn't a declarative statement. It was... Is that really how high it is? What um, is there a, a Rio Grande Valley residential mark square foot that that that's just out there that that's the va- that's the realistic value all over the valley? Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of like lot sizes. There's no like standard, yeah. you know, per square foot. I would say 150 is on the higher end. Um, we've been seeing new construction across the valley. You know, when it was really peaking at 165 per square foot for a living area of a new construction home, um, I would say probably 130, 140 is more of a reasonable average you're seeing around the valley for a decent home, let's say a three-bedroom, two-bath, two-car garage, and like a middle-income type of neighborhood. Now, I, I told uh, Craig that I had a friend whose daughter sells real estate in New Orleans, but things have been slow because the cost of a mortgage is, has risen. It's a little, it's it's choked off business a little bit. What's the state? What what's what's it like down here? Well, first of all, that's absolutely true. I mean, the the mortgage rates have essentially doubled since you know a year ago. Now, a mortgage rate is about. You know, on a national scale, is about 6.5 to 7% for even with someone with good credit. So that can really, really uh, kind of tie down the type of house you can get, you know? Mm-hmm. Like someone with a 3% mortgage last year could buy a $250,000, $300,000 house pretty easily. 
Now that same person is looking at more like a, you know, 180 to 220 house. Um, what, so, what's, um, what's the cost of a starter home in Cameron County, or is there such a thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, a, a starter home, you know, you're probably looking at 200000 for a decent starter home. I mean, you can get something cheaper, but for sure in Cameron County, it's going to be, you know, anything under two hundred, it it's going to be a lot rougher. Well, now I definitely feel like I fell off the turnip wagon or just just woke up from a long nap. That just seems like an awful lot of money for a starter home. Um, yeah, I mean, used to be a uh, used to be a starter home in Brownsville was like one thirty, um, pretty much the same in the Upper Valley, one forty, one fifty. But you know, it's gone up so much in the last two years that I'd say. You know, a decent starter home is probably closer to two hundred. Craig, is is that because uh, wages pay is sufficient for that? No, no. In fact, it's really unfortunately it's very disconnected from the wages across the country. That's one of the biggest problems we have is the cost the cost to buy a home has gone up dramatically faster than incomes have gone up. Incomes have been pretty stagnant, so people can't really afford to buy a home now it's becoming very very unaffordable to purchase a home well what um what happened <laughs> what's what's dry well, what's dry because that sounds like it, it, well you know what i'm getting at what happened well inflation i mean the the federal government put first of all we know during covid they pumped a ridiculous amount of money into the economy mm-hmm. okay and then so they they heated up the market with an excessive amount of money and excessively low interest rate. There are people right now who have interest rates of 2.25% on their home. Okay? So 2.25% is just, that's like free money, basically. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They'll never see that again. They won't see that in their life. Yeah, and and they'd be crazy to sell it. And that's the other problem we have, which is causing the, 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 uh, the prices to go up and inventory to stay low, everybody who's bought in the last 10 years uh, or has refinanced has an interest rate between 2.5 and 4.5% interest. So they're not going to sell their home because it doesn't make sense. So the only people that are selling right now are the people who are relocating to a different market, people who uh, you know are getting divorced, mm-hmm. um, inheritance. Um, you know, some other mitigating factor that's causing them, you know, to have to sell. But people are not selling right now just because they want to upsize or downsize because financially it doesn't make any sense. If you're at 3% or 2.5% and you're going to buy a new house at 6.5% or 7 hmm. people just go, you know what, we'll just, we'll just live with it like this. So that's causing inventory to stay low and... Hmm. And therefore, prices are staying up because there's not enough houses available, and and then interest rates are high. So basically, it's just all yeah. working against the consumer right now. I'm I'm afraid I've got to let it go, uh, but I want to I want to call you back soon to talk about um, you know, what the market is in Port Isabel, South Padre Island. But that's for another day. Craig Grove of Grove Realty in South south part of the Rio Valley in, in Cameron County. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, very good. Very insightful. You're listening to the 956 Drive Home here on 710 KORV.
You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. We mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have an active shooter, multiple gunshot In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. We are joined by now Tim Snyder from Matador Economics. And uh, I was, listen, I was board upping for Fred last week, Tim, and somewhere during one of the news reports, I had heard, I think it was a jobs number. And normally the jobs number was a good thing, but in the context of our economy, it was a bad thing because of ongoings with the Fed. But I wanted you to—I wanted us to take a, a, a trip around the economy and, and get your opinion on what's going on. So, what's happening? Yes, sir. First and foremost, um, on Thursday, because of the Fourth of July, the reports—the normal reports would come out Wednesday and Friday. But Thursday, the ADP, which is a private sector report on jobs, came out. And what they reported was that in June, the economy created 497,000 jobs, which uh, if you look at the estimates for the ADP number, the estimates were 228, and the highest of the range for these numbers was 318,000. So we blew those numbers right out of the water. Uh, it shocked the markets. It initially had a good positive reaction for about three and a half minutes on the stock market. And then the next thing you know, um, everybody began to realize this is telling us that this economy is hot and moving and jobs are not uh, slowing, that the job creation numbers are increasing. And that would send a signal to the Federal Reserve, which they have two mandates. One is the discount rate. The other is looking at jobs numbers. Uh, that they that their activities, their actions so far have been eh, muted, uh, maybe not even working, and so they would have to come back and redouble their efforts. The markets did not like that, but I can't stop there, guys, because because what happened is the next morning, Friday morning, we got the uh, BLS, the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers, that completely negated everything in the ADP number and showed that the U.S. economy. Uh, had created only 209,000 jobs. Now, here's the thing that I think bothered people more than anything, and that's the fact that the largest contributor to jobs in the BLS number was the federal government. They had 60,000 of those jobs were federal government jobs, which really shouldn't be in the calculation at all. That's just the government adding people to their payrolls and doesn't really give a good, accurate reflection of what the markets were seeing. Um, it, it it came across, the, those numbers came across. Then we began to look at what ADP said, what BLS had to say, and then we started to wonder, okay, does the Fed even really know 
how they're affecting or what they're affecting with the increase in interest rates that they're sending across, because this is all sending signals that says, okay, we got to do more in, first of all, pulling that inflationary numbers down. And this is, this is in light of the, the previous Friday before that, before the fourth, we got the uh, personal consumption expenditures that show that things were still pretty hot. So they're spending a lot of money. So there was a lot of confusion in the market and, and markets crave one thing and that's stability. stability and the markets went nuts. Sorry that took so long. No, no, no. I needed that explanation. Thanks a lot. Uh, Tim Snyder from Matador Economics joining us on 710 KURV. Go ahead, David. You had a question? Uh, where, um, Where's the growth? What, uh, taking taking the federal guys out, you, which you're right, they shouldn't be in there. Uh, but yeah. where is the the growth in the economy? Can you tell? Yeah, um, uh, service and um, the uh, you know, primarily in the service sectors where the where the small amount of growth was, it is significantly pulled back. Uh, the service sector uh, is is where that you know the most of the rest of those jobs were. It wasn't in construction. It wasn't in a lot of the things that we had hoped that it would be in manufacturing and those kinds of things. Uh, so, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry to cough on the air. Um, the issues that we're looking at now are: uh, will this trend has this trend actually turned, and are these numbers going to start? Um, pointing downward, which will lead us uh, into a recession by the end of the year, first of next year. It just doesn't feel recessionary. I don't know how, like that makes a lot of difference, right? One talk show guy, it doesn't feel like a recession. Well, the thing is, I don't know, I don't know whether to call this like whack-a-mole, economic whack-a-mole, or if it's more of like, uh, like when you're trying to get a train going and the cars are bumping into each other because you're, right. you're you're pulling at one force, but there's another force holding some of the cars back. But the whole train is moving forward in in some way. So it's like there's this strange accordion effect going on. Like I don't I don't know how to describe it, but it yeah. just seems like when we when it looks like we're about to get a leg up and and get some leverage finally, some momentum going, it, it seems like something pops up and it just uh, hamstrings us. Yeah, kicks a hole in it. You're absolutely right. I liken it to, and I said this last week, I think, with Davis, or it might have been two weeks ago before thanks before Fourth uh, of July. But it, it, I liken this to the way that my mother used to drive her car, which is she get <laughs> in, she put. You remember this, Davis? She would yes, put her left foot on the brake and her right foot on the accelerator, push them both down as hard as she could go, and whichever one, whichever one won, is the direction that the car went. Now it destroyed her transmission and her brakes, and, and eventually burned the motor up. But that's what you do when you have this push pull that you're talking about, Zach. That's exactly what happens in the economy. We need a Federal Reserve that follows their mandate, does what they're supposed to do. And we understand that. I mean, their mandate is purely monetary policy. Their job is to manage interest rates from the discount rate standpoint and watch and monitor jobs. The other half of the equation here, unfortunately, is the federal government has fiscal responsibilities. They have to stop spending and stop talking about spending so much money because that's what will allow the economy to settle back into a groove and then they come into what's called a connective system. Since we're talking trains, we'll call it a consist. Okay. And when that consist starts moving forward, all the trains meet the momentum. And then we have 
inertia or positive energy and the economy can move forward. That's exactly what we're doing or what we need to be doing, but we are not doing right now. But they're not going to, there's no appetite in, there's no appetite in Congress to keep spending down. They don't, I mean, there there was that economic theory that budget, that deficits mean nothing. This is a fairly new theory, and supposedly some of the Democrats subscribed to it. And then the Republicans gave up that fight a long time ago. They're complicit in all this. Um, It seems to me that as the federal budget grows, it absorbs more and more capital out of the economy and makes it tougher for things to happen, although we have a very vibrant economy. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. You know, this, this well, to me is like musical chairs up there. Did I get a chance to ask this of you, Tim? I don't think I did. Uh, what what, did, what was your reaction to the term Bidenomics as I'm getting a text message from a friend here? Okay, I'm going to give you the smart aleck answer first. I threw up in my mouth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Tim. But I'm going to tell you that that Bidenomics is an adherence to Keynesian economic theory, which means that all growth should emanate from the government from the inside out. That's what Joe Biden talks about when he says inside out, top, bottom to top, that kind of stuff. Everything is inverted, but the government is at the core and the creator of the economic opportunity. Now, we look at Reaganomics, okay? Uh, Reaganomics was more of, they called it trickle-down, but it really wasn't trickle-down. Art Laffer's a good friend and somebody that I follow as a mentor. And Art Laffer would tell you what it means is you want the businesses in your community to thrive, and you want the government to provide the boundaries so that we can have stability in the marketplace. That's what made this country grow. Uh, deviating from that and making taking the boundaries down and letting everything emanate from the government lends itself to making political decisions about the economy, not strong uh, fiscal or even monetary decisions about the economy. I know yeah, that's it- deep, but... Yeah, it just the thing is, is that like when because I, I know they they use Trumponomics during the Trump administration, but it didn't feel as forced as as or didn't feel forced compared to Bidenomics, which literally just came out of the White House like that's the term we're using now, Bidenomics, and it's great and it's just cringy <laughs> as all get out. It is, but uh, we, yeah. we we're out of time here today, Tim. I appreciate you stopping by and, and hanging Thank out with Tim. us for a little bit. That's Tim Snyder from Matador Economics. Check out the. Uh, sign up for the newsletter at uh, matadoreconomics.com. You're listening to News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday mornings starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day. And special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. We're letting you enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday mornings starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. 
This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Joining us right now on News Talk 710 KURV because the heat dome is coming and we've been wondering how Texas farmers have been faring. Gary Joyner from the Texas Farm Bureau joins us now, Director of Communications for Texas Farm Bureau. Uh, we we've got we've had some big heat conditions and we've had some low water drought conditions in the state of Texas for quite some time. How how have how have the farmers been faring? I guess you could say this year, if there if there's a word to say, it is better. Uh, 2022 was historic drought, uh, not only in your part of the state but elsewhere. We are better because of some rainfall that occurred earlier in the year, but it's turned dry and the heat's expected. But some of the combinations of the heat and humidity, the real feel, is really what is, on the livestock side, most struggling right now, uh, most impactful. Crops, uh, they're built to sustain heat to a point, and they're grown in a way to maybe get through these summer stretches where it's going to be triple digits in many parts. Uh, but it's turned hot, and farmers and ranchers are dealing with it. Yeah, this is Davis Rankin. Uh let me pose a contrary question. Isn't heat and terrible weather conditions, isn't that the Texas way? Haven't we prevailed over that in the past, or is this something different? You're right. It, it's not so different. Uh, this can almost be anticipated. We know the summer stretch is going to be brutal. Uh, we know temperatures are going to reach triple digits. The humidity is going to be high, uh, and it's going to turn dry, and we're here. Uh, the good news is there was some soil moisture out there in some of the fields that were being planted. Uh, farmers and ranchers uh, do what they can to conserve that moisture. Uh, certain practices, tillage practices help mm-hmm. keep that soil uh, as moist as it can be, knowing it's going to turn dry. So conservation practices are helping and new varieties, new varieties of crops that are bred and produced to be more drought tolerant are helping too. Uh, so it's not oh, totally unexpected, but when it comes, uh, it is a it is difficult to deal with, yeah. and folks are doing their best to manage it. Uh, well, I had one question in mind, but this one pops into mind. We grow cotton here, and they grow cotton in the, the panhandle, the, the high plains. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm above my, I'm I'm up there, up there in Texas. Uh, <laughs> but last year, didn't they get burnt up? Yes, uh, that, that is the largest cotton patch in the world is those 20 wow. counties around Lubbock, and they did not have a crop last year. It was one of the worst uh, crop uh, outcomes they've had up there in a long, long time, record amount of failure. Uh, so this year is better. Uh, there is a crop in the ground. They have gotten some beneficial moisture at some good times. Unfortunately, some of that's been with hail and with some severe weather that's knocked out some very promising crops up there. Uh, but much better, uh, much better than we were. That cotton crop is at least in the ground and, and starting to come along. We were going to ask about AI and yeah. how the yeah. farmers have been uh, using it and or the, the prospect of using AI in the future. So what, what do we have right now and what are we looking forward to, say, five years out? I tell you, the future is here. If you just quickly take a snapshot of of what's happening within the agricultural community. There's t- over 200 startups in agriculture, new companies focused on artifi- artificial intelligence and those tools that benefit from it. Uh, we're looking at equipment uses that we've never had before. You imagine a, a machine that scans over a cotton field that electronically differentiates between a weed 
and the growing crop uses a laser to zap the weed and continues to move crop with no people, with no uh, herbicides, uh, with no other automation needed. That technology is now. It's working in, in areas of the country and in those areas that need that. Uh, the cost is still high for those that would be interested in that, but like all things, that cost should come down. It becomes more available. But you go to agricultural trade shows right now, and half of that trade show hall uh, is related to artificial technology, artificial in- intelligence, automated farming. You've heard of the word precision farming? This mm-hmm. is taking it to the next level. Yeah, I got, We're I got, also hearing, too, about how to deal with pests that exist out there. That I'm, I'm real curious about. How does AI manage uh, or predict where these pests are going to end up? Well, you've hit an awfully good point. It's estimated that pests destroy 40% of the world's crops. You know, it's not just a United States issue, but worldwide, 40% is destroyed by pests. So how do you manage it? How do you get after it? Artificial intelligence is allowing some tools out there to react in real time. Uh, When you're looking at fields that are looking at potential infestation, there's been an outbreak of particular pests. You can react to it now, and you've got ability to get to it before it reaches a tipping point of too much that you can't get in front of. Uh, so that and also just the scouting, uh, the ability to differentiate uh, beneficials uh, from pests that are needing to be eliminated, all that technology is incorporated with some of this equipment that allows you to travel over these fields, airily look at a field, find out what's going on out there, what's the threshold of infestation, do you need to treat and there's even automated sprayers. I mean, literally, you could use artificial intelligence to apply a herbicide, or in this case, a, an insecticide, to take care of a pest uh, that may be starting to get foothold in a field. Gary Joyners with the Texas Farm Bureau joining us on 710KURV. Davey, go ahead. Uh, we had a client once who was developing a business of taking a, uh, taking a drone and taking pictures mm-hmm. of fields so you could see where um where you needed more nitrogen or more this or more that i assume that's been uh, per- perfected or, or improved is there any uh, way to, to combine that with artificial intelligence and in, for it to spot um b- where the pests are or where the things are that need an application of chemical which would keep the, the big use of chemicals down and make a lot a lot of people happy, including farmers? Yes, my understanding is that the drone technology, their surveillance tools and the mapping tools that was very popular and really uh, groundbreaking in, in drone usage, that's now taken the next step in terms of interpretive technology, uh, being able to then not only recognize the issue, but also then interpret reaction and results and actions to be taken. Uh, and that is also is now what's providing real-time decision-making. It's fascinating. Not only are you recognizing the problem, you're identifying it. As this new technology is now providing the solution to address it. And it's doing so in, in, in automated fashion and record time, real time. So the ability of a farmer and rancher to react to an outbreak of something that needs attention will never be any faster than what this technology is providing. And it's, it's really interesting. Uh, and it's still evolving. Uh, there's still companies and there's still software and products uh, showing up in the marketplace saying this is another new tool you might want to consider. And this is not going to be uh, not a good question. It's not going to be too expensive for f- people now to to use. Um, 
it's it, farming and ranching are both growing in in uh, uh, the the need of ready cash. I, I suspect more than they used to. But what what do you know about this? I would think that the initial use of this technology is going to be on larger scale operations where there are efficiencies and where there are economic scales because of size. Once that technology becomes more apparent in the marketplace, price should come down. I suspect you'll see uh, what's happening in agriculture with, you know, the expense of new tractors, new combines. Uh, You're seeing some contract work being done where individuals own that equipment, and then a farmer and rancher basically pays a contract fee for that equipment to be used. They may not own it. It may not be their own tractor, their own harvest combine, but they're contracting out to to an individual who has that. And I think on the technology side, some of these new tools that might come forward, you'll see individuals being hired out to apply that technology and to use it, and not everyone can afford it. And maybe that's a way in which it becomes more commonplace among our farms and ranches is is through that way. That is incredible. We've come so far from traditional methods and (laughs) like stick tools is what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? And now we've got all this technology that's that's predicting all of this stuff in advance. It's real neat Thank stuff. Thank you. Thanks a lot for bringing it to our attention, Gary. Uh, Mr. Joyner, uh, Gary Joyner is the director of communications at the Texas Farm Bureau. Joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands, your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.